0: Lockdowns, mass surveillance, forever war. Is this still the land of the free? It will be again. I'm Eric Brakey and it's time to free America now. Because an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome everyone. This is episode 117 of Free America Now. Your host here and renegade statesman, Eric Brakey. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have a guest. You might have heard my recent interview with him. We made it an episode of the podcast last week. His name is Nate Thurston. He is one of the co-hosts of Good Morning Liberty, which is a great show and podcast recorded out of Nashville, Tennessee. And he's joining me today. Hey, Nate, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Eric.
0: Hey, the pleasures on mine. well it was a, it was a, a lot of fun being on your show. Uh, that was a great conversation we had. And um, yeah, one uh, one invitation deserves another. So welcome to Free America Now.
1: Uh, I'm really excited to be here. been listening. You have got, I mean, one hundred and seventeen episodes. Congrats on that. By the way, How long have you been doing the show? Oh, they pile up quickly well when you do it five days a week you get to, i find you
0: get to 100 pretty darn quick but maybe since like october of uh, of last year so we're, it's 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 been it's been a couple months at least and we've had a lot of great guests so far and um, i i enjoy the conversations it's a great it's a great excuse to you know pick the brains of interesting people activists thinkers and policy makers and Just have some good conversations that um, you could otherwise just have on the phone with someone. But instead, we have it, have the conversation, and we invite thousands of people to listen in. And yeah, it's been a good ride so far.
1: Yeah, that's a, you know, we just hit episode 664 yesterday, and it is... I got some catching up to do. It's crazy. And like you said, we do it five days a week. Most of the time, it's five days a week. And so they really do pile up really fast when you hit that. So I I think we'll have to have a big thousandth episode party. You need to have a 500th. We had a 500th last year. So (laughs) you'll have to have a party when it comes up uh, to that time. And I'm sure all of the, uh, the guests will appreciate that. I'm kind of putting you out there right now. Other the way, because people are going to be <laughs> expecting this. So you're, you're obligated now. Yeah, well, geez,
0: if we keep doing this five days a week, um, then uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get there. I guess we won't catch up to you if you're also doing five days a week. But tell me, how did you, um, how did you get in? How long have you been doing your show? Uh, if, you, if you're in the 600s, it must have been, geez, I guess a little basic math. It must have been a little while.
1: Yeah, it's uh, so we didn't start always doing five days a week. We actually started the podcast semi-full-time in 2019. We had mm-hmm. done some episodes before that, but it was very sporadic, one every two or three weeks, something like that. And then we got into five days a week, uh, probably a year and a half or two years ago, with various times that we've missed some episodes, stuff like that. So yeah, it's been, yeah. It's been really since 2019 that we've been going strong.
0: Well, what, so what is your personal story? So obviously someone doesn't just like start a, a podcast and do it for 600 episodes. Like there's got to be something where you, you got interested in these ideas, interested in the liberty movement um, before you get to that point. So what's your story? How'd you get into the liberty movement?
1: Well, I have this extremely unique story that you've probably never heard before at all. But I was just uh, cruising around on YouTube one time and found this guy named Ron Paul talking about some stuff that I'd never heard anyone talk about before, and it just really got me thinking. I at first I was very uh, I, I was very against the things that I was hearing because I was your typical. Uh, just say generally right wing, pro war, all of that stuff. Uh, I think when you were on a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that I used to have a George Bush, uh, George W. Bush bumper sticker on my car, yeah. so I, I was gung ho. Go. I
0: got you beat. I had a uh, in high school. Bill O'Reilly was give what, was encouraging people to boycott France. You remember this? Oh yeah, when France didn't support, you know, the UN Security uh, Council resolution on the war in Iraq. So. I had a boycott France bumper sticker on the back of my first car. That's
1: how bought in I was. Did you break up any uh, any Dixie Chicks CDs in your spare time? <laughs> Truth be told, I I
0: I think at that point in time I hardly knew who the Dixie Chicks were, but I was definitely upset with them. Oh yeah, <laughs> because that's what my uh, my talking heads on on Fox News at the time told me to think.
1: Yeah, we have plenty of uh, freedom fries at my house. Uh, stuff like that. Only if you remember the freedom fries thing. Oh yeah,
0: I, I remember. Do you, Do you know who Do you know who was responsible for the freedom f- fries uh, no, thing don't. in Congress? Mm-mm. So a congressman actually who redeemed himself. His name was uh, Congressman Walter Jones. He was from I think North Carolina. I actually worked with him on um, uh, when I was on the national platform committee in 2016 at the convention on a plank to try to declassify the 28 pages of the, the uh, 9-11 report about Saudi ties to the attacks. Anyway, but he, he was like very pro-war in Iraq. He w- put in the bill to change the name of French fries in the congressional <laughs> cafeteria to Freedom Fries after the whole, you know, France didn't go along with the war. And, um, you know, I think like so many of us, he was caught up in that war fever. But, uh, but that fever broke for him. And he realized with, uh, I think must've been a year or two into the war in Iraq, what a terrible mistake it was. And he spent the rest of his life, the rest of his political career, um, writing letters and calling the the families of, of the, our soldiers who, who had died over there to, to apologize and try to, um, you know, it's one thing, you know, plenty of politicians make bad decisions. They make, that's. Basically, what our politicians are good for making bad decisions. It's very mm-hmm. rare when someone owns up to it and tries to tries to make amends. Walter Congressman Walter Jones ended up being one of Ron Paul's great friends in Congress, and boy, this is quite a tangent that we've gone down on well, uh, Freedom it's, Prize.
1: It's <laughs> interesting though. It's interesting though because, uh, like you were saying, it's not it's not normal to see someone even change their mind on anything i think once you get entrenched in an idea you just dig in more and more on that idea so him making that pivot like that i mean that's a big deal i don't know if he has any books written or anything yet but we need to get into that psychology and how that happened
0: yeah yeah he's um well the neocons after that the neocons primary challenged him every single election (laughs) and they were uh they were never able to oust him um but uh, but he did eventually pass away. But anyway, he was a good man. Um all right, but that was a that was a fun rabbit hole to go down. Back to your personal story. So yeah. you had the W bumper sticker right mm. on your car. Uh this was um let me ask you so how how old are you Nate? What year were you born? Uh 87. I'm I'm 34. All right, you got one year on me. Okay. Mm. I was 88. Um so all right, so we're very much the same generation. Same we gr- grew up under Similar circumstances, you and I—I guess you must have been in like the the ninth grade or the eighth grade when the
1: towers fell and all the 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 march to war began. Is that right? Like a lot of people that are our age, I'm sure you do too. I remember the moment that I heard that it happened. I remember someone bursting in the classroom and telling us what happened. We went into our commons area and watched it uh, the uh, for the entire rest of the day, and uh, you know that's just a significant thing. That sticks out in your mind, just like January sixth for everyone else uh, that's uh, growing <laughs> up like that these days. You know, exactly the same thing. It's uh, there's almost no difference at all. Uh, but yeah, that I think you're right. Maybe freshman, sophomore, something like that. Um, after just a couple other little little things, my main thing. So I'm in Nashville. I moved here from the tyrannical state of Illinois. Uh, the rest of my family, I left my family behind, uh, so that maybe that. Makes me a bad person. I, know, I left people behind back there in Illinois, but I guess that's their decision. Uh, I'm i glad mean, they, I should you.
0: they should follow you. to Tennessee if they love freedom.
1: I've been trying to get them to, but you know, I come from a farm family, and it's it's uh, easy to, it's easy to pack up the trunk of your car and right. move down here, but uh, it's hard to bring a lot of acreage with you down here. Uh, yeah, I came down sense. to uh, I came down to Nashville for a crazy reason that people never move to Nashville for, which is to play music. Um sure, so I got two very unique stories here. I moved to Nashville to play music, and was oh, Nashville I, known for that i it used to be it's it used not to um, be. Oh, yeah you come is... here to, you come here to get drunk now that's the main reason <laughs> um so that's a that's the reason I came that, down That here was a joke to, by the way for anyone who back home is going to be like, Wow, how clueless is Eric Brakey about?' <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure that they could understand the uh, it's not like we're tweeting or texting here. I'm sure they (laughs) maybe they got it. Uh, Charlie and I both moved down here at the same time. We the co-host of Good Morning Liberty. We came down here at the same time in 2010. We're both from Illinois. We went to high school together, Uh, been best friends for a long time now and came down here to join different bands and play music. We both toured around for a long time. I made it to all 50 states and uh, 13 different countries. And uh, Charlie did the same thing in his bands. And then uh, after music, started a company Flipping Houses here in Nashville and did that for a couple of years until I broke my back, literally. And uh, then um, don't do that kind of music, in, don't do that kind of uh, work anymore At the under the advisement of my doctor and my wife. And just really realized that I was very unhappy with what was happening in the entire political sphere. I did you know, I, I moved from being very right wing to being more libertarian, and we just keep going down this crazy path that seems to get worse and worse. The government gets bigger and bigger. And if you don't get out there and talk about it and try and change a few people's minds, uh, then, you know what what am I going to do? Just sit here and be unhappy about it for forever. I, I figure maybe we should uh, start this podcast. It was actually Charlie's idea. He forced me into it. We're just going to start a podcast and start trying to change people's minds.
0: So, d- did you were you and Charlie friends in Illinois, or did you become friends? Oh, you you met in Tennessee and realized you're both from Illinois and had all this
1: in common and started decided to no, start a we, podcast together. We went to grade school and high school together, so wow, knowing each so other. This- this Forever. is a very long-term bromance between the two of you. Long-term, it is the strongest bromance you've ever seen. There should be several movies about it. Uh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll make some movies about it later on. We'll see. But yeah, it's a, it's it's crazy, and I think it comes through on the podcast because he and I have just been sitting here talking about these things for a really long time, and so that's what we do. We just have microphones in front of our faces now, so it's a little different.
0: All right, well, if your life was a movie, what is it building up towards? Like, what's going to be the climax
1: between this in this bromance film between you and Charlie? Well, uh, let's see. There needs to be a... I hope we don't hit the time. You know, there's that time in the movie where everything falls apart, and you're down in the dumps, and then eventually you realize that you have to come back together. And we haven't really gone through that yet. But if it's going to be a movie, that has to happen. So maybe... I guess you
0: could embellish some of these like real life things in in, for the movie to create conflict. Like, you know, something's like, like the band is breaking up or something. The podcast is like, I'm not doing this podcast anymore. I can't work with you. I don't know. There's got to be something there. But then somehow you get your
1: problems uh, resolved. It'll be like the social network, probably, where we, uh, where it gets really, really big, and then someone writes the other one out of the contract, probably, and they'll be able to make a movie about it like that. So we'll just say it's going to be like the so, social So like one of is. you is the Winklevoss twins? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, one of us would be uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of us would be Zuckerberg, and one of us would be uh, the friend that he started it with. I can't remember his name now. Uh, you know, the one that uh, played by Andrew Garfield in the movie. Oh, uh, that, I'm, try- got, I'm trying. Right to now, I can't remember his name now. It's mm. been a long time since I've seen the movie. Okay,
0: so we're, there were other uh, be, be, besides the Winklevoss twins.
1: Yeah, so I'm hope okay. So I hope this doesn't happen. I, I don't have any plans of this happening. No for Charlie when you listen to this this is not a, any type of plan uh, hopefully he doesn't have it worked out like that either but maybe it'll be like the Patriot uh, that, that would be fine the Patriot or Braveheart I think we could, we could do that fighting for liberty possibly right. I don't really want to go out like the in the Braveheart or anything but hey
0: well you know hopefully you know in the end uh, <laughs> in the end we all go out shouting for freedom
1: yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I would just, you know, when, when things, I don't, I don't know if everything that we're doing is going to work, but I at least want to be able to look back and say that I was doing the right things that I was trying to convert people and change people's minds and at least be able to look back on it and and say that. And I hope everyone yeah. is doing that at the same time that, that even if you think that none of this is going to work, there's no way we can stop this federal government tyrannical train that's going at least be on the right side of history. Yeah,
0: what role do you think that podcasting has to play in in uh, in all of this right now? I mean, obviously, podcasting has become a big target. I mean, certain podcasters, especially like Joe Rogan, have become big targets uh, for of the kind of political est- establishment. It used to be, it used to be kind of a joke. Oh, you know, oh, someone goes start, and there are pl- there are plenty of podcasts out there that. Um, uh, don't don't accrue much of an audience, but now we have podcasts who that have become so big that put out narratives counter to the establishment narratives that are um, dwarfing the size of the mainstream uh, mainstream media viewership. Uh, it's almost a misnomer to call them mainstream anymore. <laughs> um, what do you th- what what role do you think podcasting uh, plays uh, it, it has to play in kind of the fight for freedom? going uh, n- right now and going into the future.
1: I think one really important role, obviously, is just getting information out there. It's not, and it's not always going to be the correct information. Maybe there even is some misinformation. Maybe someone says something that, uh, that isn't true. But the most important thing I see is allowing people to question what the, quote, mainstream media narrative is out there. And just getting someone to question that you can hopefully look back and see, well, was the thing I heard on that podcast, was it factually accurate? Uh, should I look into that? But the idea that you should question something to me is the most important part because that is what happened when when it came to finding Ron Paul on YouTube. It, yeah. it wasn't exactly... The, I don't know that everything that Ron Paul said was right. Actually, I'm just saying... I'm, Pretty much everything he said was right. We, we know that. But, um, you know, it's not, it's not about that. It's that it turned on this thing in my brain that said, I've been just listening to whatever this mainstream narrative was, literally just whatever came out of the Oval Office was the truth etched in stone uh, brought down from Washington. And I, uh, I needed to at least question the authority. And I'd never really thought about that before. And so what I'm hoping is that these podcasts at least open up that door in people's brains. And I also think it's very important for us to be able to group together, even if it's smaller podcasts who, who have uh, not 11 million listeners like Joe Rogan. But I think it's important for us to each have our little groups that we can speak to, that we can meet with, that we can organize with, uh, especially when it comes to Things like Young Americans for Liberty, by the way, that's been the we do a thing called White Pill Wednesday on our podcast, by the way. And we have mentioned Young Americans for Liberty in probably 50 percent of the podcast episodes for White Pill Wednesday, because yeah. it is the number one organization that we can think of that is actually doing something that can solve the problem right now. Yeah.
0: Our, our activists really are amazing, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I remember being kind of a very kind of lonely warrior for years, kind of working in my, in the state Senate and being an activist here in Maine, building up Liberty Networks here. Um, uh, but also just kind of hoping and praying that like people across the country were doing the same thing. And I remember um, in 2016, I had served, you know, I just got elected to my second term in the Maine Senate. And I remember speaking with someone at Young Americans for Liberty about uh, this new program that they were building called Operation Win at the Door and trying to get liberty legislators elected across the country. And um, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I was hoping that like when I had run for state senate and gotten elected and gotten these things done, I was hoping that there were so many other people out there across the country who were doing the exact same thing on the exact same path. And there were a few but when we actually kind of got, got up and looked around across the states, there were not a whole lot of Ron Paul supporters who had successfully managed to get elected to their state legislatures and were making a difference there. they you know, were a small handful, but not nearly on the scale that you would need to really fight back against the, the political machine that we live under in this country. And um, just to, to think how in a few short years – from 2016 until today with operation win at the door mobilizing our activists to get out there knock doors get liberty folks elected we've gone from maybe you know a small handful maybe less than 10 people across the country to now we're approaching 237 state legislatures with millions of doors knocked for these candidates by our activists to get them elected and then more doors knocked to hold them accountable once they get there, and uh, and all of their colleagues accountable. I mean, to see the passage of constitutional carry across the country and school choice and so many other kind of liberty policies and and past and tyrannical policies abolished, it's uh, it's encouraging. And I I this uh, you know it is Wednesday, so I guess this is our White Pill Wednesday as well. Um, yeah it it gives me a lot of hope uh what our activists are doing and the legislators that we've gotten elected
1: well we spend a lot of time talking about the federal government obviously we do a lot on our podcast too uh they do a lot of terrible things but when it actually comes to solutions and actionable solutions that's the best thing about young americans for liberty is that there's an actionable plan put in place it's great that we all have these ideas and we talk about them online and everything, but actually putting a plan in place to get people into the state legislatures, that really makes a difference. And it makes a difference in people's lives. Uh, it, it over the last couple of years, we should all realize that having people in place in the state legislatures and even in your yeah. County and your cities, that that is very, very important. I mean, I, we went through the lockdowns and all of that, but I've said on the podcast several times, I don't feel like I ever went through a lockdown. The city that I go to to get everything, everything was always open. The restaurant, the, the couple restaurants that my wife and I really like to go out to eat at, they never required any masks. They, they never shut down. They were open the whole time. And that's all because the, it was being done on a local level. And that's how important that local level was. Yeah. I was able to go through the last couple of years with hardly ever feeling like I was going through a lockdown. Now, I was upset about what everyone else was having to go through, but the answer was who was in place in my, in my local counties, right here next to yeah. me and, and here in the state. Let me ask you, if you had a
0: choice, you could have control over a majority in Congress or control over a majority of the state
1: legislatures, which would you which would you pick, and why? Uh, you said majority of state legislatures, like more. Right. So let's say let's say like
0: uh, fifty states, right? Let's say let's say thirty state legislatures were kind of the liberty movement was. Uh, really, kind of operating, or really kind of a dominant political force in thirty state legislatures, to the point where you could, you know, push substantial things that we care about and and get things changed. Or on the or we could have a let's say a dominant force in Washington D.C. and a majority there. Now, I think it's probably harder to get them. Uh, well, we could, I guess we could debate which is harder to achieve. But let's say you could have either one. Uh, which uh, which which would you prefer? Which do you think uh, would make a bigger impact?
1: That's a great question that really puts it in perspective because I know I would go with having the majority of the state legislatures be because uh, of nullification, uh, because yeah. of the 10th Amendment, because of the power that these states actually have. And uh, just like what we've seen over the last couple of years, that that is actually more important. It would also be harder to corrupt all of the people and all of those legislatures spreading out all of that influence uh, through Throughout all of them, instead of trying to corrupt uh, 300 of the uh, of the federal uh, people in the legislature, so that that would be much easier to do instead of spreading out your resources among all of those different states. I think it would be easier to keep those people in place for uh, a longer amount of time because of that. And they're the ones that actually have most of the power, since I think yeah. basically everything the federal government does needs to be gotten rid of uh, i would much rather have the state legislatures yeah
0: well i think you're absolutely right i mean obviously i guess we were talking about it so maybe i kind of gave that but i think i but you know something that's occurred to me is i feel like the choice between whether or not to try to win on the state levels across the country or to win in washington dc it's are are you a lord of the rings fan by the way i am not unfortunately i'm sorry No, that's fine. Well, this is an analogy uh, I often use and I think it applies here. It's like, it's the choice between taking the ring to Gondor or taking the ring to Mount Doom. You know, uh, in in the book, there's this big debate between in the fellowship. You know, they've got the ring of power. Do they take the ring of power to Gondor to use the ring's power in the defense of kind of human civilization? And to take the power for themselves to try to beat back, the, you know, the uh, the armies of Mordor with force, or do you take it to Mount Doom to destroy that that source of of, of power and uh, and and weaken your enemy that way, uh, but not take that power for yourself. and And of course, the the danger of taking the power for yourself is that you may defeat your opponent, you may defeat the armies of Mordor, you may defeat the Democrats. But you will, in the process, become just as bad. You will become the new tyrant. That that power, that centralized power, corrupts. So maybe one day, maybe we could take over Washington D.C. Maybe we could have you know a, a, a majority there. But how do you keep those people accountable once they've got that ring of power and there's and they can use it for whatever they want? Uh, it's a dangerous thing. But if you go to the states, we take over the state legislatures. The power to nullify—that's that's like Mount Doom right there, you know. That's uh, that's just, we, we can from the states on up with our with gra- with grassroots uh, bottom-up uh, political action. You can, as you mentioned, you can nullify. You can uh, you can defeat a lot of these federal these f- tyrannical federal policies from the state level. So.
1: Yeah, the answer is to get rid of the power. And this is something that we've actually had pretty good success in talking to people about. Uh, Anyone who listens to the podcast has heard us mention the story a bunch of times. But we got into uh, a couple arguments with Bernie supporters when we were at different conferences. We were at Politicon, uh, which has got people from all sides of every aisle there. And to me, the most important question to someone, even the someone like, even someone like Joe Rogan, we mentioned him earlier. He loves Bernie, and it's so weird to me because he also goes off on all the power that the federal government has in a span of twenty minutes. A couple, uh, I think, on the most recent episode or the episode before that, um, he went from talking about how maybe Bernie would be the greatest person to to put in power, and then twenty minutes later, he was talking about how equality of outcome is a ridiculous idea that we shouldn't strive towards whatsoever. And so the question that you have to ask someone like that is, who is after Bernie? Okay, you think he's a great person, you think he's gonna do an amazing job, Who is it that's going to be after him? And if you can't answer that question, then you cannot allow Bernie to have that power. I thought that this point would have been made perfectly for people on the left by the fact that we just had Donald Trump as our president for the last four years. And you would think that since we literally had Hitler in office, according to all of to all of those people, that you would really just want to take away the power that that office has. And, and that would be the actual solution. Instead, it seems like the answer is to make sure that you are the one that always stays in power. But of course, uh, like with your analogy with Lord of the Rings earlier, which I'm just sorry, it's not that I'm not a fan. I just actually haven't seen it. I'm sure if I watched it, I would, I would enjoy it. You know, people, a lot of people like the movies. Movies are nice. Books are great.
0: If you ever get the time, it's a long thing. It's like, is like buckling down and like reading through Atlas Shrugged, right? You know, <laughs> it's a, it's a long commitment, but, but you're, you're, you're right. I, I think I was listening to that episode of Joe Rogan that you referenced where, yeah, he said that exact thing. He, he talks about, um, well, he's basically, I think he was trying to, he was, if I remember right, I don't remember who he was talking to, but he's trying to establish how crazy it is that he's getting attacked by. So many people on the left, and he's like, "Look, I'm, I'm on the left. I support Bernie Sanders. I support single payer health care. I support welfare programs. He's just, I just also support Second Amendment and other things. All right, but I do think what he misses here is, I understand what what Rogan is saying, and he values a social safety net, and I think that we can have a legitimate debate about you know, social the social safety net. Uh, we certainly this is something that has been put in place." We do have a social safety net. A lot of people like the idea of a social safety net. We could have a social safety net, though, without it being built so stupidly, right? (laughs) We could have a social safety net without it being built in such a way that it concentrates power in centralized government agencies and uh, takes power and autonomy away from the individual. I mean, this is like the problem with – this is the problem with – healthcare, uh, single payer healthcare as it's conceived by so many on the left, right? Is their path to getting quote unquote universal healthcare is to create a centralized distribution process for healthcare where there's a monopoly payer that, is, that ultimately decides who gets healthcare and who doesn't. And boy, we have seen over the course of the last f- the last year, especially with these vaccine mandates, how dangerous that can be with people many of the same people advocating for the creation of a monopoly payer healthcare system also saying that people who do not follow government mandates as far as vaccines should be denied access to healthcare completely so right now thankfully we still have some freedom they cannot even if they if they had the had the you know power to do so or if they had the um policymaking power to do so. They, they can't effectively deny everyone access to healthcare if you have the means and the money to be able to go and purchase your own healthcare uh, outside of kind of these government systems. But they want to consolidate everything into a government system. So you would have no choice. Oh, I'm sorry, you, didn't, you don't want to get your fourth booster, no healthcare for you until you comply and submit, citizen.
1: Yeah, and what's dangerous? Scenario. What's unfortunate is that uh, that argument works well for us and keeping us fearful of them ever doing that. But if you're on the side of wanting the vaccine mandates and thinking that everyone who's unvaccinated yeah. has is killing everyone, you hear that and you're like, well, yeah, okay, that's uh, that. Just get the vaccine. You know, that's all you got to do is get the jab. There's your thing, and uh, and so unfortunately, uh, I just uh, I don't think that we're going to scare. Any of uh, the people on the left with that side of it, what really scares me is the idea you get people like Bernie, by the way, are anyone ever wants to find all of our links? So I'll say this later on Bernie is what you need to type into your web browser and that will bring up everything Bernie goes out there and talks about um, it's going to actually make everything cheaper that we're actually going to save money. Can someone just please name one thing that the government got involved in that got cheaper as a result? And I don't mean cheaper for you as the payer when you when you paid for the service or the money that you physically took out of your account and, and paid for it. What I mean is the actual product itself got cheaper. And we don't, I, maybe you have one, but I don't have any examples of a time when they got involved, that system got more efficient it was more streamlined and everything got cheaper as a result. I have, n- I have no examples. Yeah, uh,
0: certainly by removing competition, things do not get cheaper. No. Uh, by, by removing, and as much as the socialists love to hate on the idea of profit and how bad profit is, pro- profit in a competitive system, in a competitive market system, the profit motive is what makes people strive to deliver higher quality at lower costs in order to outcompete you know uh, other providers so it all the profit motive makes the makes in a competitive marketplace it makes people really focus on pleasing the customer and i i have long said with our healthcare system i often think that we're, we 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 are the current narrative of debate, I think, presents us with a very false choice. So this has kind of been the the mode that we've been in for the last really uh, uh, last several decades, at least since Obamacare, probably before that. But but the the binary that we're given, kind of like much of the fa- false left right binary, Republican Democrat binary, is that we need to have a system and choose between a system that is controlled by big corporations and insurance companies and big hospitals, either they're in control or we choose a system where we have big government in control. And it's kind of weird that those are our, our only two options. Like both of those options seem to suck. Why, why why can't we build a system where doctors and patients are in control, where consumers are in control? That, that's what we always strive for in, in, in free market. Any free market system is a system where the consumers are in charge because the providers have to cater to uh, you know, they've got to compete for for your business. Why can't we do that in healthcare? Um, and we rely we have- on
1: that for food, by the way. Like every single person needs food to survive. It's a you know that's a thing, and we allow <laughs> the competitive system to grow food and supply us with food that we would die if we didn't have. And it's actually gotten so cheap that we have an obesity problem and so this idea that the free market wouldn't be able to you know it's great you're talking about those two systems should we build this system or build this system we don't even have to build the other system we don't need to vote on it we don't need to do any of that the system will actually build itself when you allow the market to do what the market's going to do and that's actually harder that's actually hard to sell to people because people want solutions they want this actionable plan we're going to come up with this amazing healthcare system the, the free market and capitalism doesn't exactly work that way. Uh, when, when Henry Ford was creating the assembly line, he didn't say, this is, you know, uh, the problem I see is that eventually Uber is going to put taxi cabs out of business in New York. That wasn't part of his plan, but that's what it led to uh, eventually. But you can't expect him to have that plan at that time. He comes up with something. Someone ends up innovating after that. Someone else innovates after that. There are, they're all pursuing profit, which, by the way, makes things cheaper for everyone, is, uh, is people pursuing profit. And so it's, it's actually a, a difficult thing to sell to people who want to hear what this solution is because they want this plan written down on paper. The solution is for us to not create a plan for this and to leave everyone alone and they're going to do it because that is the incentive structure inside of the free market is to provide the best service for everyone there certainly is you know i i um i agree with most of that i
0: think the the best thing we can do immediately is like get rid of a lot of these government policies that have restricted you know free enterprise and free competition. Like, I don't know if you got these laws in Tennessee, but I know that there are laws in many States
1: called certificate of need laws. Are you familiar oh, with you're them? Getting, you're going to get me started now. That's, uh, oh. and everyone who listens to our podcast is going to be so joyed to hear me talking about CON again, because it is a ridiculous concept. Yeah, it, it is.
0: It is basically, uh, we, we can imagine, um, I always think if we imagine this as uh, with cell phone service providers, uh, imagine if you were a cell phone service provider and you wanted to put up new cell phone towers in order to provide more coverage to people in the area, uh, and you had to go to your competitors and get their permission and have them certify that there is, in fact, a need for you to put up more cell phone towers. Well, of course, your competitors have a clear incentive to say, no. No, we don't think that we don't think that there is a need for for you to come into our territory. This is our territory, and uh, we don't want you competing for our customers. So we're going to say there's no need for more cell phone towers. Obviously, that's going to be a very that's a very monopolistic policy. It concentrates power in established, you know, um, firms in 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 the industry, and it limits competition. And we can see in states. Uh, this is this is what we're doing in healthcare. If you want to expand services, if you want to build a new hospital, you got to get permission from your competitors and the state in order to do it. We can see in states with certificate of need laws that the average price of of healthcare is significantly higher than in states without certificate of, of need laws and yet it's usually the big the big hospitals lobby very hard to keep these laws these anti-competitive laws in place so that's absolutely one thing we can do to get government out of the way where we don't need a plan we need to stop you know we need to you know stop damming the river of 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 the market and we need to let competition work but i will say i do i, I do respect the concerns that a lot of people have about if you had totally free market system, uh, if you, if there wasn't any kind of a social safety net, maybe there's a lot of people who wouldn't be able, still wouldn't be able to afford healthcare. And I get that. I do think a free market system is going to bring things down, make things more affordable for everyone over time. But what if we just like, y- y- you think about all these trillions of dollars we put into Medicare and Medicaid and so many of these government um, subsidy programs, but the money doesn't actually go to consumers and patients. It doesn't actually empower them to be in control of their health care and to be a purchaser of their own health care. It goes to government bureaucracies, government bureaucrats who get to you know dole, dole out and um, uh, actually waste a lot of the money. And then it also goes to the big hospital systems. It's kind of like the very same problem we have in education. We're funding systems instead of patients. You look, you look across the world, Singapore has a very interesting model. Are you familiar with the Singapore model on healthcare? No, I'm not. So basically, they have a social safety net, but it's kind of like a UBI for healthcare, right? They don't put all the money into like a big government bureaucracy or funnel it into the big uh, health uh, hospital systems they effectively they, they put the money into HSAs that the people control and then you've got funds you can you can you can purchase you can direct pay for your own health care you can uh, at least for routine routine health care that you can plan for you can direct pay for that and maybe you get a high deductible health insurance plan for catastrophic things that you can't plan for but it cuts out these third party payers who drive up the cost of health care and make the system unaccountable patients. You know, I always think of uh, Jafar's golden rule from Aladdin, he who has the gold makes the rules. And that's exactly what's going on in our healthcare system. We've given all the gold to the big hospitals, to the big uh, government bureaucracies. And so patients aren't the customers in the system. The big third party payers are the customers they get catered to. We're just products on an assembly line that get passed along. And if we're not ultimately happy, with how we've been treated and the services that we've provided uh, for our healthcare, it's a it, it ultimately makes no difference to the bottom line of healthcare providers because we're not the ones paying the bills. I mean, we are indirectly we're paying it through our taxes and our insurance premiums, but uh, but we've given all of the power, the market power, to these third party payers, and I think that's something we as as consumers need to reclaim, and that will uh, uh, it, that will reorient healthcare and make it a system that you know, really is based on market principles again.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a few things that we could uh, that we could get rid of that the government has in place as far as regulations. The CON laws, I think, are the first thing that we could get a lot of people to agree on. Uh, once again, when the when I was talking to those Bernie supporters at Politicon, they were upset about healthcare and I said, well let's just talk about a few things that make healthcare more expensive. I told them about CON laws, which they had never heard of before, and they said sounded completely ridiculous and was something that we needed to get rid of. So let's find things that we agree on. Uh, A lot of this we know stems back to FDR and freezing wages. And uh, that's where we get to this point where everyone has insurance for everything because you start getting the insurance through your jobs. The the corporations are able to purchase that pre-tax money. They're able to get a better deal on it. Then it's attached to your job and that's where your more affordable health insurance comes from that actually locks in people in their jobs and slows down overall innovation in the economy because people are less likely to move around to what might be the most efficient use of their time and could help them with their growth overall in their productivity and so there are things uh like this that we can decrease um you know we had this thing over the last couple of years where the fda was um, able to allow a newly created medication to go on to the market Mm -hmm. in a record amount of time and i think that there are other things that maybe we could classify as emergencies where people should be able to use some some medications that are new now in some ways people have been alarmed by the amount of time that wasn't put in to testing all of the vaccines Uh, but We we should allow people to use those things if they want to. In my opinion, we could decrease (laughs) some of the cost in that.
0: Right. Isn't that weird? It's like whenever the government does something right, they still manage to do it wrong. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's like, hey, all right. Hey, you did something right. Uh, These vaccines were expedited. They went through this uh, process. You made them available for people to choose for themselves if they wanted to. That's great. Okay. but then you went a step further, government, and then you said, "All right, now this experimental, uh, 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 these experimental vaccines, we're not just making them available, uh, you know, through an expedited process. We're going to mandate that you have to take them." Now it's like, no, you got it half right. Just, just leave it there. But no, they, they, there's, there's always got to be an element of government force involved. They can't just, they can't just, uh, they can't just uh, let people make up their own minds. And of course, I've always thought that. You know, I fought for uh, right to try legislation and um, had a lot of done a lot of work in Maine and nationally on right to try legislation, uh, which is that that principle. Right. That if you are uh, right to try specifically for terminally ill patients, if there's an experimental medication out there that you'd like to try that has potential to save your own life and the FDA approval process takes 10 years, you shouldn't have to wait. You should be able to have the right to try that yourself. If, uh, if you'd like to, if your doctor will work with you on it, if the manufacturer will make it available to you, just say, let's not have this federal government bureaucracy standing in the way of your right to try something that could save your life. Now, that's swept across the country and uh, state by state, eventually signed into law on the federal level by Donald Trump. That's all well and good. But uh, it is kind of the, the underlying principle. You know, I remember, I remember trying to get um, my governor, Paula Page, to sign that. And uh, I had to talk him into it because initially he was like, well, this doesn't go far enough. People should be able to like choose, you know, whatever they they want. And that's ultimately true. Ultimately, I think we should, you know. Yeah, take, why do you take have to be terminally ill, get. you know? Right, exactly. I think the best case scenario would be like the FDA just functioning as a like a private certification agency, you know, that you have the freedom to use something that is FDA approved or not FDA approved. But a lot of people are going to want to look for that approval to uh, say, oh, this is an FDA approved. Maybe I want to stay away from that. Uh, this one's got FDA approval. If if the FDA actually um, <laughs> has a good <laughs> reputation, which yeah. uh, I don't know, I think their their reputation has been severely damaged by all this. Well, but what is the FDA for them? Right, right, but then of course there should be other uh, re- there should be other uh, certification agencies too, other other agencies that can verify these drug the, these drugs. You know what's um, what's been uh, certified and what what hasn't been. But you know ultimately consumers should be able to decide. Uh, it,
1: yeah, it, and it, at that time yeah. you you look for that brand name on the box and you say okay well this was approved by this is approved by uh, senator eric brickey well look at that this must be a really good medication uh, a lot of people end up I wouldn't trust that. me I'm... <laughs> <laughs> anyway. A lot of people end up taking it and it either uh, it it hurts them in some way it uh, kills a bunch of people not saying that you would approve such a medication but then your brand is worthless after that so you have a massive yeah. incentive to be able to to be able to do that, and the FDA should have that incentive. Also, it seems like they're not working within that incentive because, hey, when you have a monopoly on things, what is your incentive to actually do a good job? You right. uh, you don't have it.
0: Well, and there are often I mean, very like uh, the whole design of it's it's very risk averse, right? Uh, if someone dies because the FDA took an extra five years to approve a drug that could have saved their life. The FDA doesn't usually get blamed for that because that's the unseen. People didn't know that that drug could have been available to save their life. But they do get blamed if they approve something that does kill someone. So they are they have a very strong incentive to block things from coming to market uh, than they do to prematurely approve things because they then they've got kind of a, a accountability for that as they as they should, if they put their stamp of approval on it. But that's why it shouldn't require someone's stamp of
1: approval. Uh, it shouldn't require the
0: FDA stamp of approval to try something there. Do you, think the be buyer private, beware.
1: do you think our private stamp of approval agency that we're creating right now, would they have that same incentive too to be very risk adverse? I, I, would they be too risk adverse, you think? Because you know, they'd be so worried about about messing up their brand name?
0: I mean, potentially, but but I guess I don't see that risk aversion being a problem. Uh, so much in a system where one, there can be other competing ratings uh, agencies. So you've got like maybe consumer reports decides, all right, we're going to start certifying. We're going to have our own kind of division certifying these things and and looking into these things. And so you could have some private competition there. Uh, And then two, ultimately if the FDA wants to be the, the folks who we have the very strictest, strongest standards in order to give FDA approval, then maybe that works. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's, that's g- good, for, good for them in that case. Uh, maybe, maybe that will make the FDA kind of the gold standard of we don't want uh, pe- people look at and say they don't want anything that doesn't have FDA approval. Uh, but as long as you still have the freedom to access other things without FDA approval, it's no longer a problem. It's only, it's only the, the force and violence that's inherent in the current regime that's the problem.
1: The other thing with the mandates, I wanted to say real quick that people who uh, are real big supporters of the free market, uh, the other thing is that when you mandate something like say we mandate these vaccines and there's a lot of people that have died from COVID, the vaccines are very important. I want, you know what I want is a vaccine and I want it to be the absolute best possible vaccine that we could ever have in the history of man. And what I wonder is, are you likely to have those innovations in a system where people are mandated to take whatever product you put out, or are you going to get that in a system where people have to choose to take whatever product you put out? In my opinion, the mandates actually decrease the effectiveness of the vaccine because it decreases the incentive structure that the companies need to make an even better vaccine. Maybe they have all these other ideas right now, but are they as likely to are they as likely to use all of those ideas when they're saying oh well you know what people are mandated to take this thing anyway so why would we do this why why right. would we put the extra r and d in right now so actually uh, on the pro vaccine side i think that the free market is better no mandates would be better at saving more lives because we would have better vaccines
0: you know it's um i think i think you're very right in that i mean especially when government just says hey we're going to buy the vaccines no matter what. I mean, what what incentive then does the company have to to really um, maximize the quality? It's, it, I'm sure they've got so many incentives in there, but it certainly suppresses that market incentive right there. But then on top of that, and I think this has been a long standing problem with the just the vaccine industry is that they have no legal liability if their vaccines malfunction and hurt someone uh if someone gets a, a vaccine injury they, they, they have no personal liability in this uh instead the people can sue but it goes to a, a government-run vaccine court and the taxpayers pay out damages rather than the companies and this has been i think a policy since like the 80s mm-hmm. um, and so e- even before all of the fight on uh covid vaccines this has always been a very, very problematic aspect of just how the the liability of the vaccine industry is is structured. I've always thought, geez, if I I had to choose between like buying two different cars, right? And uh, they were identical in every single way, but one car was manufactured by a company that had no liability whatsoever if like the engine failed or the brakes failed and like I was in a tragic accident, they had no liability. Versus a company that does have legal liability if something like that happens. Which company do I think is going to be taking greater pains to make sure that there is um, uh, lower incidence of of malfunction or something going wrong? I think those with skin in the game. And, mm-hmm. and right now, it's just become it's just become a way for these companies to just print money because government will say you have no liability whatsoever. And also we're going to mandate all of these things that you create.
1: That becomes a, it's even more of a problem when we have these mandates and we have the FDA selecting which companies are going to make it and which companies aren't. And we're picking who we're going to buy it from. Uh, those are all, I, I understand part of the liability argument, but I think it would be best just for people to have liability on the products that you create at, uh, I understand a little bit where you say, OK, we need this vaccine really quickly. There is a pandemic going on, going around. Uh, we need here's what we'll do. You're not going to have a liability because if we put the liability on there, maybe it's going to take you two years to create it. And there is everyone's going to be dead by then. And so we need this right now. So I can understand that side of the argument a little bit. Uh, But it overall, I do think it would be better for them to have liability on this, you wouldn't have so many vaccine hesitant people that's obviously been a really big reason that the the theories about the vaccine have popped up some true some not true, and that so many people have been hesitant to do it. it is just because they don't think the company has any reason to actually put out the best product possible. And what I was getting to with the overall, the mandates and the FDA is, the company would still have some incentive to put out the best product possible, even if they didn't have liability because of their brand name. And if everyone was going to take this, then they still have that incentive because of their brand name. But when we're in this structure where the FDA is picking and choosing which companies are going to create this and which companies are not going to be able to create it, who can release things, who can't, people are mandating that you're going to take something from this specific company, then you decrease a little bit of that incentive structure for the brand name from the companies too. So overall, we've got a really messed up system right now.
0: Yeah, it's mucked up like uh, only government can do. So, Mm -hmm. thank you, government. That's what you're good for.
1: (laughs) Making all of our lives miserable. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, I want the I want the federal government to do defense, and that's that. I do think we need a federal government for defense of the country i i struggle to find really anything else that i want the federal government to do i think the state should take care of basically everything else other than that i think that would solve a lot of problems right now too right now they've got their hands in everything they they take so much of our money they borrow so much. they create so much money they create the inflation not corporate greed creating the inflation by the way the the money printing creating the inflation. Government uh, th- greed is creating the inflation. Government greed. There you go. Um, they they, basically become this gun that different factions are fighting over right now because they're scared of what the other person's going to do when they get the gun. And I, I think until we remove that problem, until we take away the powers that, that they have, uh, th- we're going to keep dividing and getting worse and worse like we are as a society. Uh, What really needs to happen is we need to treat ourselves like what we used to be, which is 50 separate states, 50 separate countries. And I won't worry about what's going on in California unless California is uh, actively killing people and putting people in camps and taking away all their liberties. Then I think the federal government's got a job to come in and enforce uh, the basic liberties of human beings. But other than that, let's just, you know, I'm in Tennessee right now. Let's just worry about what's going on in Tennessee the issue is we can't do that right now because of what's going on with the federal government. They're taking some of my money. They're giving it to other states. They're, they're wasting it. They're setting it on fire. Essentially, they just got this big pile of money. They're setting it on fire all the time. And that's causing problems in my life. And until we stop them from doing what they're doing and get this back down to politics on a local level and get all the power back to the states, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep trending in the direction it's going right now. And that's another reason why, by the way, we love Young Americans for Liberty so much, because that's what that's what you guys are doing.
0: Well, hey, Nate, I really appreciate it. And it's hard to believe. I feel like we just started talking yeah, <laughs> and it's that already was the cool. end of the hour. That was easy. Yeah, it happened so quick. Um, all right. So your show was Good Morning Liberty. Uh, and. Any final thoughts? Where can people find the show and follow you on social media? Uh,
1: they can. The, the easiest thing, I guess, for people to do, obviously, on whatever podcast app you're using right now from whatever tyrannical big company, it is that you're using the the, the big tech overlords. They still allow us to be, to be on all of their platforms and we are thankful to them for that. So you can look for Good Morning Liberty on that or you can just type in bernielies.com into your browser and that'll bring up all the links to everything that we have. Uh, we're real active on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram and all those things. So whichever one is your favorite, we're on there. Truth Social. We got a Truth Social account that we're posting stuff on. I don't know if you got one yet. The new, I don't know uh, what that is. Truth. So that's uh, Trump's new social media app. Oh, Just, okay. He released it on President's Day, which I think is hilarious. It came out on President's Day and there's already a, a lot of people on there and it's not just your far-right extremists that are on there. It seems to be quite a few people. So we got an account on there, too, if anyone has one yet. But yeah, that's it. We, uh, we, our, our slogan is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Meaning. And we do a new episode every single day of the week when we want to. And so if you're interested, come on over.
0: Awesome. Well, Nate, it's been a real pleasure talking about podcasting and how we fix healthcare and, uh, how, you know, Ron Paul videos on YouTube were for so many of us, the path to Liberty. Uh, it's actually kind of scary when you think about all the censorship going on on YouTube. Maybe we need to archive some of that stuff before yeah. they go down the memory hole. Um, but, uh, Hey, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much. You're always welcome back on the show for another free range conversation. This one really was free range. We just wandered everywhere and talked about anything, but I, I enjoy that. Thank you for coming on. And to the audience, thank you for joining in. Furthermore, my opinion is the Federal Reserve should be destroyed. Talk with you all tomorrow.